Good afternoon, church. Can you hear me? Can you see me? <laughs> okay, so before I start, you can already tell I sound different from most of you. That's because I'm from the other side of the world. I'm from, oops, this is not, let me see, how do I get this to work? Okay, there we go. I'm from Singapore, and that's a little dot on the other side of the world. So try to stay on with me. I know I have a little bit of an accent, and I'm going to go very fast. So please try to pay attention because we have a lot of exciting things to cover. So I work for Creation Ministries International, our U.S. office. We are an international ministry, but our U.S. office is actually in Georgia. So that's where I am, and that's my family, me and my, my kids and wife. So Creation Ministries International, we exist in seven countries around the world, and every year we go to churches like this to give over 1,000 talks about creation, evolution, and things like that. And I'd like to introduce Creation Ministries as an information ministry. So what do I mean by that? Well, how many of us have ever had questions like this? Hasn't science proven evolution and millions of years to be fact? And is there evidence of a worldwide flood? Have you wondered about that? What about this? Don't the fossils prove millions of years? And I'll talk about that too. Did God use evolution and millions of years to create? And the big question, if God is a God of love, why is there so much death and suffering? Can I have a show of hands if at some point in time in your life you ever had questions like that? Raise your hands. Okay, do me a favor, leave your hands up, and take a quick look around us, all right? Hands down. That's almost 95% of us. And most of us, at some point in time in our life, we have questions like that. And that's what I mean when I say we are an information ministry. We exist to provide answers to all these questions that almost every single one of us have, so that your faith may be strengthened, so that you can use this to reach out to your kids, your families, and your friends. See, Creation Ministry, we also have a website that where we have over 40 years of research, over 15,000 articles on creation and evolution. So if you have a question about this topic, go to creation.com and type your question into the search bar, and it's very likely there will be a reply waiting for you. So as a ministry, as far as I'm aware of, we actually employ more PhD scientists than any other Christian organization in the world. So that's creation.com. Lots of free resources there and um, very helpful as well. We have a free email newsletter. And what's this? This is just something that we send out to supporters once a week. So just to update you with the latest news. We do not sell you information. We do not spam you. So what's that for? Imagine you get home from work or from school and your, your neighbor comes up to you and shows you the newspaper. Well, if you still know what's a newspaper, right? And it says that the latest ape man has been found. And your neighbor says, how do you answer that? If you're part of this email newsletter, it's very likely that at the end of the week, you will have a reply waiting for you. Just forward our email to your friends and you can use that as a stepping stone to share the gospel with them. So if you're interested in this, we just need your name and your email address, and we'll put that into the database when we get back to the office. And we'll send you a link where you can watch this two-part DVD. Um, it's quite similar to what you hear today uh, at your own time as well. And of course, you can use this to reach out to your friends and families as well. So we just need your name and your email address. So volunteers, if you want, you can hand out the sign-up sheets. As they're doing that, let me get into my um, actual presentation. So if you notice, one of the degrees I have earlier on is a degree in evolutionary biology. 
And when people hear that, they always ask me this question, why would a Christian study evolution? You see, I did my science degrees in Australia, and I was there for four years. And as far as I was able to for those four years, every Saturday, if I was not helping with creation ministries, I would try to help out with this open-air street preaching ministry. So that's on the streets of Brisbane, Australia. So every Saturday for three hours, from 9 p.m. to midnight, I'll be sharing the gospel with people on the streets. And as far as I can remember, every single week, I will have at least one person asking me a question about creation and evolution. And I'm convinced that this is the biggest intellectual excuse for why many people are not willing to believe the word of God. You know, if any of you are here are involved in street evangelism ministries, you will know that this is the number one question. See, why are we even speaking about creation and evolution? Because it boils down to this question. Can we trust the word of God? You see, if the Bible in Genesis has mystics in it, if we cannot trust what the Bible says about creation, why trust what it has to say about the virgin birth, about the resurrection, about a future hope and salvation? You see, it boils down to the authority of God's word. But you see, many times, this is what we see. This boy, he goes to school, he goes to the library, he goes to the movie. And what does he learn? Does he learn about creation? No, he learns about evolution, millions of years and all that. And he goes to school or his good friend Johnny, Johnny comes up to him and Johnny says, Hey, look, Jesus died for sinners. The Bible says so. His friend turns around and says, Oh, come on, the Bible isn't true. I mean, hasn't science proven evolution? And where do dinosaurs fit in the Bible? Don't fossils take millions of years to form? And is the Bible wrong on science? And Johnny turns around, he says, I don't know. Is Johnny's witnessing going to be effective? No. But it's worse than that. Because now Johnny has all these questions, and who does he ask? Mom, Dad, can you answer these questions? And does he get any answers? Most of the time, sadly, the answer is no. So sometimes you get very sad testimonies. Like this, in this case, someone wrote to us, a college chaplain says this, this constant brainwashing, he's talking about the idea of millions of years and evolution. This constant brainwash destroys the faith of many Christ Christians each year. Our surveys in indicate that 80% of first-year students believe in a God who is there. By their second year, only 15% believe in God. This survey is actually done in, in Australia. But in the United States, major denominations have done similar surveys coming to the same conclusion. A George Barna survey tells us that 64% of kids who grew up in church, these are all kids with a church background. They grew up in church all their life. When they get to college, they leave the church never to return. Southern Baptist Convention tells us 88% of kids who grew up in church leave the church never to return when they get to college. Lifeway, research 70%. Assembly of God, 66%. George Barna, older research, 61%. What, as, what figure is acceptable? You see, when we say something like that, the two and three kids who grew up in church, they leave the church when they get to college, we need to ask another question, why? What's the reason that they give? Yes, I understand the Holy Spirit has to come, has to regenerate us, has to change our minds and cause us to, to believe His Word. But if you ask this to them, what is the reason that they give for why they refuse to believe or they don't believe the Word of God? What do you think the reason is? A couple of years, we went to the colleges in the States and we interviewed hundreds of students. And we all asked them this question. Did you grow up in church? Do you have a church background? If they say no, we leave them aside. We just wanted to look at kids who have a church background. 
And to all these kids who grew up in church, we ask the second question. Do you believe in creation or evolution? The vast majority actually said evolution. And so to all these good kids who believe in evolution but grew up in church, we ask the third question. Have you ever been shown how science supports the Bible? Every single one of them said no. And the final question, do you still attend church? And every single one of these kids who grew up in church but now believe in evolution and were never taught to defend the faith, every single one of them except for one guy no longer attends church. Then we went to the group that believe in creation. The same thing. Have you been shown how science supports the Bible? Every single one said yes. Do you still attend church? And every single one of them said yes. And before our very eyes, we saw in this study, we call it the fallout project, that the biggest excuse for why people give for not believing the word of God boils down to this whole issue of creation and evolution. Why? Because like I said earlier on, if the Bible gets it wrong in Genesis, why trust what it has to say about the gospel? Here's another one. Josh Barnard, 2018, says that the two biggest reasons for millennials for why they, ref- they don't believe the Christian faith. Number one, science refutes the Bible. By science, they're actually talking about evolution, not science as we know it. And second one, refusal to believe in fairy tales, miracles, genesis, creation. These two reasons are essentially the same thing. It boils down to creation and evolution. See, many well, many Christians, they say, they, they say that why, why must we talk about creation? It's controversial, right? Why don't we just say that God uses evolution? Has anyone here, here heard of the organization Biologos? Anyone? Some of you. So what's Biologos? Biologos is an organization in the United States that gives millions of dollars to Bible colleges, to churches, encouraging them to teach evolution. And if they teach evolution, they give them these grants. And this is what the vice, former vice president of Biologos says. So he's trying to get, he's teaching in, in, in a Bible college, he's trying to get to teach evolution to his students. This is what he says. That's Carl Gibson, right? He says, instead, scientifically informed young evangelicals, that means students who he teach evolution to, became so alienated from their home churches that they walked away, taking their enlightenment with them. Many of my most talented former students no longer attend any church, and some have completely abandoned their faith traditions. So all these students, these top students in Bible colleges, he teach them evolution, and are we surprised that later on they decide to leave the church? It doesn't work. Okay, if we tell people that the Bible cannot be trusted in Genesis, what do you think that would do to the motivation to preach the word of God? See, another group of people say, yes, the Bible teaches creation, and I believe it. I say, that's wonderful, because the word of God has to be our foundation. But we should not stop there. Because the Bible, yes, yes, we believe the word of God, but the Bible also tells us that we have to train ourselves. Train ourselves to tear down, to cast out imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and take it, bring into captivity every thought to obey Christ. Yes, we believe the word of God, but if you want to be a faithful Christian, you also train yourself to be able to defend the faith so that you can use the gospel to reach your kids, your families and your church. Who loves science over here? Quite a few of you. I love science. And I'll talk about science, but before we discuss the science, we need to understand something about the nature of science. So here's a question for you. So everyone, please choose something. Who has more evidence, creation or evolution? Who says there's more evidence for evolution? 
Who says there's more evidence for creation? Okay, who says the same? Okay, who says I don't know? Okay, let me try to rephrase that question a different way. So here in my hands, I have a, um, a fossil of a shellfish. So two scientists, one creationist, one evolutionist, when they're looking at this fossil before your very eyes, are they looking at the same fossil or different fossil? The same. Two astronomers looking at a star, are they looking at the same star or different star? The same. So let me ask you a question again. Who has more evidence, creation or evolution? Oops. <laughs> it's actually the same. See, we have the same scientific data, the same fossils. The reason we come to different conclusions is not because we have different signs. We come to different conclusions because we have a different starting worldview. And the worldview is what interprets the fossil, the evidence, bringing you to a different And we need to understand this when we're dealing with science. But I believe that when we start with the word of God, we have the correct starting worldview. All the science will begin to make sense. You see, when I say science, what comes to mind? For a lot of you, you think of technology, right? You think of laptops, airplanes, projectors. We get all these things, technology, from what we call operational science or experimental science. So what's that? Well, operational science or experimental science is science that's in the present, science that's observable, science that's repeatable, and science that's testable. What do I mean by that? Here I have a little ball. If I were to let go of this ball, what do you think will happen? It falls to the ground. Why? Gravity, right? And if you do not believe me, what can you do? Just do it over and over again. And experiments has the benefit of allowing us to remove a lot of hypotheses or, or ideas that are not consistent with reality. Yes, it's subjective to a certain sense, but because we have the benefit of experiments, we can remove a lot of explanation that just doesn't match reality. But when we're talking about creation evolution, we're dealing with a different type of science. We're dealing with what we call historical science. And historical science is different because it's not in the present, it's not observable, it's not repeatable, and it's not testable. So it's going to be far more subjective because we don't have the benefits of experiments to remove a lot of these wrong ideas. So what do I mean by that? I grew up in Singapore. And Singapore, during World War II, we were under the Japanese occupation. So I wasn't alive back then. So if I want to find out what life was like under the Japanese, what can I do? And go online, right? Do a Google search. Go to a library, read some books. Or I used to speak to my grandmother, and she used to tell me first-hand accounts of what life was like back then. But you see, what I cannot do is I cannot travel back in time and carry out an experiment, experiment back in time. So it's going to be far more subjective. All I can do is take bits and pieces of information in the present and try to piece together a story of, of what life is like back then. And because of that, my worldview is going to play a much bigger role in the way I explain the evidence. A couple of months ago, I was listening to a professor talking about how he went to a museum in, in Japan. And you have all these books opening to the same incident during World War II but they're all written in different languages, some in Japanese, in Korean, in English from different countries, all talking about the same event. But every single book told a completely different story. Why? Because they all interpret that according to their different nationalistic tendencies. 
You see, it's like the same fossil, but it's the worldview that interprets that, bringing them to a different conclusion. See, sometimes when I speak about this, historical science and operational science, skeptics, they come along. They say, no, this distinction, oh, you, you creationists, you come up with this distinction because you do not, not want to acknowledge that evolution is science. That's what we're saying. But I'm going to show you that this is not something that creationists alone are saying because well-known philosophers of science, even the leading evolutionists in the last century will actually acknowledge that as well. So here's Ernest Meyer, leading evolutionist in the last century. This is what he says. He says, for example, Darwin introduced historicity into science. That's just what I said. Evolutionary biology, in contrast with physics and chemistry, is a historical science. The evolutionist attempts to explain events and processes that have already taken place. Laws and experiments are what? Inappropriate techniques for the explication of such events and processes. Instead, one constructs a historical narrative, a story, consisting of a tentative reconstruction of the particular scenario that led to the events one is trying to explain. A lot of big words there. But he's essentially saying what I just explained to you earlier on. Okay? Evolution, creation, is historical science. So because of it, the world is going to play a much bigger role in the way you interpret the evidence. So in case maybe that's not clear to you, why is this important? Maybe this might help. So here I have a quiz, and everyone please choose something. So I have two curved lines here. What's missing, and how did this look like originally? A, B, C, or D? Okay? Who thinks the original picture is A? One? Who thinks it's B? A few Bs? Who thinks it's C? Future full faces there? D? Okay, a few days. Do you want to know the answer? <laughs> Nothing is missing. You see, I trick you, but that's my point, isn't it? Why did you think that something was missing? I asked you a leading question. I suggested to you something was missing. And what I essentially did was I gave you a worldview. I told you what something was missing. And to be honest, it doesn't matter whether you choose A, B, C, or D. All four options are entirely consistent with the two lines. But because you had the wrong starting assumption, you interpret the evidence wrongly, coming to the, to the wrong conclusion. Imagine before I show you the four options, I say to you, consider the possibility that nothing is missing. Okay, if I say that to you, and then I show you the four options, would you maybe have chosen something different? Everything's the same. So why do you come to a different conclusion? It's the worldview that interprets the evidence. Okay, so in the same way when we're dealing with, with the fossils and all that, you no, know, circular geologists will say, hey, look at all the rock layers, the fossils in there. That's evidence of millions of years of death, disease, struggle, suffering. In, we find fossil tones and tissues in the fossil record, human bones in the fossil record. But may I encourage you to start with the Word of God. Start with what the Bible says, and then look at the evidence, and the same evidence will actually begin to show good evidence for a recent creation a worldwide flood, and so on. So I'm sure we have all seen document documentaries of the Grand Canyon, right? Who has seen the documentary of Grand Canyon? Or maybe you've been there yourself. Quite a few of you. So you've seen pictures like this, all the rock layers and the millions of years there. Wait a minute, what did I just say? When you see something like that, ask yourself, what's the evidence 
What's the interpretation? Learn to separate that out in your mind. So what's the evidence? Those are rock layers, sedimentary rocks, rocks laid down by water. What's the interpretation? Millions of years. Learn to separate that out in your mind. And so what do we see? Yes, we see rock layers, rocks that are laid down by water, and we find fossils in there, marine fossils, things that was once alive, but now dead. We find marine fossils. In fact, I have a fossil display at the back. Go check out some of these for yourself. This, the one I have in my hands is this big one here. So this shellfish here, right? Not many people are aware of this, but it's not only in the Grand Canyon, but most mountain ranges in the world is covered with marine fossils, even the top of Mount Everest. And evolutionists, they agree. They say, yes, Mount Everest was once under the ocean, and over millions of years, it's slowly been pushed up, and that's why we see those fossils there today. But if you start with the Word of God, can you think of an event for why we would see marine fossils at the top of mountains today? What's that? The worldwide flood. So again, you see, we have two different worldviews looking at the evidence bringing us to a different conclusion. But remember what I say? I believe that when you start with the Word of God, everything needs to make much more sense. Why do I say that? Well, we have all these fossils, right? I'm sure we've all been to the seaside, you look at fossils, clams, and things like that. When a clam dies, does it remain closed or does it open up? It opens up. Within a few days, the top half separates from the bottom half. So why is it that the vast majority of fossil clams and shellfish that we have are all in a closed position? Is this a clam waiting for millions of years to be buried? Or is this rapid barrier? Catastrophe, something went through the area, forever burying it in its path, so it's forever stuck in a closed position. Here's more clams, look at that. All in a closed position, shellfish here. So when you think of a fossil, don't think of millions of years. Tell yourself, that's good evidence of catastrophe, of a worldwide flood, and things like that. Like what we say in this cartoon, clam therapy. I wasn't even dead yet. It happened so suddenly. It happened to my entire family. I couldn't even open up. You see, the Bible tells us that there is a worldwide flood. But it's not just in Genesis. It's also in the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it warns us. It says this, Knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. So what are scoffers? Unbelievers, people who come mocking the Bible. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. It's always been that way, you know, there's no flood, no catastrophe. It continues, for, they, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth was standing out of water and in water, whereby the world that then existed, being overflowed with water, perished. In Second Peter, it tells us that in the last days, scoffers will come along. And one of the characteristics of these scoffers during Peter's day is that they would deny the worldwide flood. But do you notice what else it says? It says they willingly are ignorant of. What does that mean? If you are willingly ignorant, that means that with the right starting worldview, you should be able to see evidence of all these things that he's talking about, shouldn't we? You see, sometimes when I speak about creation, skeptics come along, they say that, you know, why must you believe that God created the world in six days? I mean, doesn't it say that a day is a thousand years? Who has heard of that? Right? 
Do you know where they get that verse from? It's actually, the passage is just two verses after this. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. The first thing you need to notice, it doesn't say a day is a thousand years. It says a day is as a thousand years. Okay? And then they stop there. And I say, please read the rest of the sentence. It says, and a thousand years is as a day. You're back to square one. You see, it continues. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us words, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, this passage is not even talking about creation days. It's talking about the patience of God. Why? Because in, in Genesis, the Bible is very clear, right? That, it, that God created a light source on day one. Let there be light, rotating earth, so there's evening and morning one day. There's time on earth. There's no such thing as God's time. God is outside of time. So when Genesis talks about time, creation time, it's time on earth. But in this passage, it's not talking about creation days. It's talking about the patience of God, that God is not willing that any of his people perish, and they weren't. Okay? So this is a warning. Warning against what? Do you remember the context of what we just read two verses before this? Peter was warning us about the scoffers who come the last days, and one of the characteristics is that they deny the worldwide flood. A day is as a thousand years. The passage read in this context is a warning against those who deny the word of God. So how then do we understand the signs? I mean, you said earlier on that those fossils, those rock layers contain fossils, right? How do you explain all the rock layers? Well, I already said that those are sedimentary rocks, Rocks laid down by water. But how do we understand that? Maybe this might help. So this is a well-known volcano, Mount St. Helens. So who was around when Mount St. Helens erupted? Okay, so now I know your age. Okay, something interesting about this volcano is actually missing its site. That's because it exploded and it blew its site just like that. And when that happened, we saw many interesting geological processes forming in a short period of time. So here you have a cliff for scale, the person at the bottom. This is a record of three separate events, each taking less than a single day when Mount St. Helens erupted. So when the volcano erupted, this entire first layer was laid down in less than a single day. And then later on, one month later, it blew its side, and hot ash and debris ran down the mountainside, and the entire second layer was laid down in just three hours. Three hours. You know, when you have a catastrophe like that, these things can happen quickly. But let us zoom into this, all right? You see that? You see all these micro-laminations? Circular geology textbooks will tell you each line must have taken one year to form. But operational science, we saw this happening before our very eyes. When the volcano erupted and blew its side, the entire second layer was laid down in just three hours. When you have catastrophe, these things can happen very quickly. And then later on, a mud flow ran through that area and the top layer was laid down in just one single day. Friends, Mount St. Helens is a tiny volcano. Can you imagine what a worldwide flood, which the Bible says actually lasted over one year long? What would such a flood do all over the world? Okay, so maybe you say to me, yeah, okay, I, I grant you that. If there's a worldwide catastrophe like the Bible says, you get rock layers forming quickly. But I've been to the Grand Canyon and everybody knows that there's the Colorado River that runs through that. 
Look at the high sides. That must have taken millions of years to cover up the canyon. Does it? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that the Colorado River actually runs in the opposite gradient of the land. So how did that form? Well, let's get back to Mount St. Helens. Remember the top layer here? That was a mud flow. That mud flow also covered an entire canyon in one single day. And that canyon is given the nickname Little Grand Canyon. Why do you think it was given that nickname? It's one fortieth the size of the Grand Canyon in one single day from a small, tiny volcano. This is Little Grand Canyon. You see the same high sites and the stream that runs through that? Did this stream take millions of years to cover out the canyon? Or was the stream, what was after the catastrophe? Do you see how it's changing the starting worldview, changes the way they look at some of these things? In fact, Little Grand Canyon is one out of at least six different canyons, huge canyons, that was carved out at the, uh, as a result of the events that took place in Mount St. Helens. In one of these huge canyons, you actually see that these striations are left behind as you scratch out these rocks through hard volcanic rock, not soft ash, hard volcanic rocks, just like that. These things can form quickly. So you say to me, okay, maybe you get canyons forming quickly, you get rock layers forming quickly, but earlier on you said that those rock layers contain fossils, and everybody knows fossils takes millions of years to form. Does it? How does a fossil form? If you go to a museum, this is what they'll tell you. you no, know, a dinosaur dies, he sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and over millions of years he's slowly being buried. And that's the rock layers that you see there. And one day due to erosion, the bones are exposed. And that is how you get for yourself a fossil. Can you get for yourself a fossil forming that way? Well, I'm sure we've all been to, we've all seen documentaries of the ocean floor. Is it covered with millions of fish waiting to be buried? No, why not? It will decay away, it gets eaten away. You see, if you do not believe me, for yourself. So here we have Freddy the fish. Okay, and when no one's looking, Take a few drops of cyanide. Okay, if this happened in the ocean, you know what will happen is that after a few days, it will begin to bloat, it floats to the top, fish will come, bite at it, scraps will fall to the bottom. The lobsters, scavengers come along, and within weeks, nothing is left. So how can you get a well-formed fossil forming over millions of years? It doesn't make sense. See, forensic scientists have actually done experiments. And here what they did is they took this freshly killed pig, they placed it in deep water, cold, wa cold waters and low oxygen waters. So you will not expect this pig to decay quickly. Then they place it, they tie it down, see the ropes here? So it will not float away. And they place it under a big cage so that big fish and sharks will not eat this. See, the researchers just wanted to see what small marine scavengers like shrimps and lobsters, what, what that would do to a pig like this. The next picture I'm going to show you, this same pic, seven days later. You see that? Do you notice how scattered the bones are? These are just some small marine scavengers, lobsters, shrimps. And the bones are scattered, what we call disarticulated. They don't fall in a nice position. This is just seven days. So how then can you explain that in the fossil record, we have huge marine reptiles and, and fossils just like this? 
You see how well preserved it is. It's intact. It's not scattered about. In fact, this marine reptile, ichthyosaur, is so well preserved, I can even tell you it's a female. And the way we know that, it's giving birth. I know some of you ladies here, you have stories of long labor. Did that take a million years? You see, when we see something like that, that should tell us. Rapid barrier. We talked about that in Creation Magazine. I'll come to this at the end of my talk. But do you think you can take a chart like that and go to your kids and say, hey, look, the worldwide flood is the best explanation for the fossils that we see out there. You see, like we already said, to get a good intact fossil like that, you need rapid barrier, you need catastrophe. So how then do you get a fossil? Freddy the fish swimming along. And the Bible tells us that when the flood started, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. So imagine subterranean water sources from the seas, waters com- coming from the seas onto the land, worldwide earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic activity. Freddy the fish swimming along and, oh no, he's buried. Given lots of water and rich minerals and the right conditions, very quickly in a short period of time, we can get for ourselves a very well intact fossil just like that. Just like this fish here. This fish was buried before it could even finish eating its breakfast. How long do fish take to eat? Not millions of years. But that that raises another question, doesn't it? Doesn't the fossilization process itself take millions of years? Well, not really. Here we have a petrified teddy bear that was turned into stone in just three to five months. This was made in northern England. So at the back of the book tables there, if you check it out, I also have a fossil display. I have this teddy bear made from the very same spring. That's the teddy bear you see on the right here. You hear that? All right? Three to five months. And this is how they do it. All they do is they hang it. You see these little round things here? You may not be able to see from the back, but these are the teddy bears. They hang it there, let the spring water drip on it, and the rich minerals and water pour upon it, and within three to five months, the whole thing completely turns into stone. The key here is rich, rich minerals and lots and lots of water. Just like what we expect if there was a worldwide flood. And by the way, in case you're wondering, that's not a real human head. That's just an artifact. But that is how we make this. This very same spring, there, uh, in Scientific America in the 1800s, there was an article about this very same spring. And in those days, they were trying to preserve all kinds of fossils. Frogs, cats, dogs, birds. Here you see a lobster. And at the bottom here, it describes how in one case, a cat was so completely petrified that when he broke off his head, no organic material was left. The whole thing had entirely turned into stone. You see, these things can form quickly with the right conditions. Here's another fossil I have at a fossil table. This is a paper rose, and there's a metal wire here, this curved part here. This was made in the Czech Republic. How long do you think it took to make this? Two weeks. Just two weeks. A teddy bear as well in my office in Georgia. Just two weeks to form. In fact, this teddy bear is more petrified than the vast majority of dinosaur fossils that you find in the field. And yet, it only took two weeks to form. So I love fossils. I collect fossils. And people like to ask me, what is my favorite example of a fossil? One of my favorite is what we call polystrate fossils. Or if you go to a national park, they may call that petrified forest. Anyone has heard of that? Some of you. So what's a petrified forest? 
is these things, okay? They see if all these tree trunks here, see all the rock layers? So if all these rock layers have a tree trunk that runs right through that, how does that grow? How did that happen? The circular explanation is that this must have been swampy areas and the tree must have been there in place, growing in place, and slowly over long periods of time, you know, the soil formed around that. But that's wood. It was decayed away. So how do you get that? See, what's interesting is many of these polystrate fossils do not have much leaves. Many do not have much roots. Sometimes you do get a small root ball, but that's about it. They don't have massive root mass there. Many of them do not have any bark. And one of every few hundred or so of them is actually found upside down. So how did that form? In fact, these formations, they are massive. And you can actually see these logs, this is what they look like in the fossil record. They overlap one another. You can actually match the tree rings at the top, those for the wood at the top and the bottom, and very often they are the same. You can carbon date that to give it the same age as well. So how did this form? It was a mystery for many years until Mars and Helens erupted. You see, it blew its side, and the explosive force caused it to blow millions of trees into a nearby lake. So this is Spirit Lake near Mount St. Helens. See all these trees floating there? Because of the force, many of them were blown off the ground. They do not have leaves. They do not have roots. Sometimes a small root ball. And they float on the water surface. And they begin to rub against one another. After a few weeks, the bark will begin to fall to the bottom of the lake to form a low-grade coal. And as they float on the water surface, after a few months, the root end would begin to get waterlogged. So the root end would sink and will float in a vertical position. When the whole thing becomes completely waterlogged, it sinks to the bottom and it looks just like that. This is a picture at Spirit Lake at Mount St. Helens. You see that? They're all floating in a vertical position. The scientists who went under the water record that say it was dangerous because some of these trees were starting to fall to the bottom. And it looks like a forest. The only way we know to form that is from, in this case, a, a lake. A lake condition, right? It's a big lake. But some of these formations out there, they are so massive. No lake or no local flood will be able to explain how we get some of these things. Here you have a quotation from an evolutionist, a circular geologist. And I want you to hear what he says, a well-known professor, right? He says this, if one estimates the total thickness of the British coal measures as about 1,000 meters, that's 3,000 feet. So imagine sedimentation, 3,000 feet thick, with all these trees overlapping one another throughout the whole thing. We cannot escape the conclusion that sedimentation was at times very rapid indeed. If those trees form a short period of time, that means all those same rock layers form in an equally short period of time. What local flood can give you 3,000 feet thick of sediments with all these things running through it? No local flood. You're talking about a worldwide flood there. Good science supports the Bible. But what does the Bible say about creation? The Bible tells us that God created the world in six days. All right? <coughs> I already mentioned that earlier on, people come along and say, why can't we say a day is a thousand years? We have already addressed that. But if you stretch each day to a thousand years, you're still stuck with 6,000 years. Where did your idea of billions of years from? If you stretch each day to a billion years, now you're in real serious trouble. Why do I say that? When did God create light? On day one, right? Let there be light, and there was light. So you have a rotating earth, a light source. You have evening, morning, one day. But what was created on the third day? Plants. What was created on the fourth day? 
the sun, moon, and stars. See, God created a light source on day one, but the actual sun, moon, and stars that we see today were only created on the fourth day. We have evening, morning, one day, that's 12 hours. Dark, 12 hours light, just like our night and day cycle today. 12 hours, here, dark to light. Not an issue. But if you stretch each day to a billion years, now your trees are going to go for billions of years without the sun, moon, and stars. Why would you want to do something like that? You end up with a position that's not compatible with evolution, and neither is it compatible with the Bible. It's so much better just to take God's word as it says. God created the world in six days. On, six, on the sixth day, he created land creatures, and he created man. There was a real Adam and Eve, a real Garden of Eden, a real fall into sin. And when they fell into sin, they brought sin, death, and suffering into this world. See, the Bible doesn't just stop at the six days of creation. The Bible gives us a genealogy from Adam all the way to the last Adam, Jesus Christ. See, the reason why Jesus can die on the cross for all sins is because he's our blood relative. He can come as our kinsman redeemer to die in our place, to undo the curse that came into the first man, Adam. If you want to understand the gospel, why Jesus had to die a physical death, you need to understand that Adam brought death, disease, and suffering into this world when he fell into sin. But the Bible doesn't just give us a genealogy, does it? It gives us a genealogy with numbers. Now, you may not be able to see all the small print there, but this is why it says Adam was 130 years old when he has his next in line. Seth. Seth was 105 when he has his next in line, and so on. See, when you have a genealogy with numbers, you cannot have any gaps in between. So we know how long it is from Adam all the way to Noah, all the way to Abraham, all the way to Joseph, all the way to, we know when was the Exodus. We know when Jesus died on the cross. We know when was the exile. You just add those numbers up. We know that from Adam to this present day, it's about 6,000 years. See, when you have a genealogy with numbers, you cannot have gaps in between. The Bible doesn't allow you to put millions of years or even hundreds of thousands of years between Adam to this present day. The Bible is very clear, about 6,000 years. But can you put millions of years before Adam? No, why not? Try to follow along with me. Maybe this will help you. See, if you believe in evolution, believe in the Big Bang, you believe that the universe is 13.7 billion years old. So draw a timeline, 13.7 billion years. According to evolution, <coughs> Homo sapiens came in about 300,000 years ago. Right? If you believe that we start with Homo erectus, then you're talking about the maximum 2.8 million years ago. But if you have a timeline, 13.7 billion years, and humans came in 2.8 million years ago, humans will be at the very extreme end of this timeline. Do you follow with me? If creation is only 6,000 years old, and God created man on the sixth day of creation, man will be at the very beginning of this timeline. Okay? So we have two very different timelines. One man at the end, one man at the beginning. Who is right? When Jesus was teaching about marriage, what did he say? In the Mark passage, he says this, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus teaches that the earth is young. My question to you is this, do you believe Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Do you see why this is such an important issue? See, the moment you try to put millions of years in, Adam goes into the very end. But Jesus said that's not the case. Jesus teaches the earth is young. 
Jesus says this, If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how will ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And here the context, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. But essentially it applies to everything else that Jesus teaches. If you cannot believe when Jesus tells us earthly things, why believe when he teaches us about heavenly things? See, when I talk about this, people say, no, I don't want to talk about creation. Let's just focus on the gospel. I mean, doesn't it say in the Bible that the gospel is of first importance? Yes, it does. And where do we get that from? 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul preaches the gospel. So good, let's preach the gospel. How did Apostle Paul preach the gospel? He says, so as it's written, the first man, Adam, was a living soul. The last Adam was, a, was made a quickening spirit. To preach the gospel, the Apostle Paul had to go back to Genesis. He had to show how sin entered the world and why there is a need of a saviour. But notice something, it doesn't say first Adam. It says first man, Adam. Adam was not one out of 10,000 hominid that evolved out of Africa. Adam was the very first man God created out of the dust and breathed his breath through him so he became a living soul, a special creation. And that's the foundation of the gospel. You see, where do we get the idea of millions of years from? Is it from the Bible? No. The idea of millions of years is an outside idea that has been imposed upon the Bible. And the millions of years is really an interpretation of the rock layers. And the rock layers, we find fossils. Fossils of things that was once alive. We see evidence of cancer, arthritis, broken bones, bite marks. Here we actually have a dinosaur, a duck-billed dinosaur or hadrosaur, right? So this duck-billed dinosaur, his tailbone, we see that you have a T-Rex tooth embedded in it. In fact, we know this dinosaur survived the attack because this tooth was stuck in between two of its joints and healed around the tooth, fusing the two joints together. Can you imagine how much pain this dinosaur must have experienced walking around with this tooth stuck in its tail? That's suffering. That's evidence that the fossil record that we see is mainly a record of the worldwide flood. It's mainly a record of something that occurred after sin had already entered the world. Here's another one. We see a dinosaur bone with arthritis. That's disease. <coughs> but what were dinosaurs and creatures like that eating at the very beginning? I'll cover this a little bit more in my next session on dinosaurs. But were they eating one another? No, the Bible is very clear at the beginning when God made all these creatures. He said, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. Animals only began to eat one another after sin entered the world. And God only gave Noah the permission it made after the flood. But at the beginning, there was no death, no disease, no suffering. But if you believe in evolution, you believe that millions of years of death, disease, and suffering leads to man. In evolution, death is a good thing because death leads to the progress of man. So if you say, if God is a God of love, why is there so much death and suffering? Why are you complaining? Because in your worldview, death is actually a good thing that leads to man, right? But the Bible is clear death is an intruder into this world. So again, remember what I said. The idea of millions of years comes from an interpretation of the rock layers, which contains fossils, things that was once alive and now dead. If you try to put millions of years in the Bible, this is what you're saying. The Garden of Eden, God saw all he had created, and it was very good. He placed the Garden of Eden, Adam Eve, on millions of years of death, disease, and suffering. Is that very good? 
What else do we see in a fossil record? We find fossil thorns and thistles. But the Bible is clear, thorns and thistles came in as a result of the fall, part of the curse. And when Jesus was on the cross, what did he wear on his head? A crown of thorns. Why? A symbol that he came to undo the curse that came in through the first man, Adam. Yet in the fossil record, we find fossil thorns and thistles. We find human bones that using the evolutionary timeline extend beyond 6,000 years. So are you now going to say that there's human death before even humans walk on the earth? It doesn't work. That should tell us, like I say, that a fossil record is not a record of millions of years. It's a record of an event that took place after sin entered the world, the flood. And if that's the case, your millions of years just went out of the window. Just like that. See, the, if you believe in evolution, you believe that millions of years of death leads to men. See, when I go to churches, I ask them, how many of you believe in evolution? Sometimes you get a few hands going up. But then if I ask the question, who believed in millions of years? You see many hands going up. But you, they don't understand that the moment you try to put millions of years into the Bible, you still have all the same issues. You have the fossils in there. You still have death before sin. Okay, the real issue is the millions of years because that's where you get death and disease before sin entered the world. But the Bible is very clear. Man's action brought death into this world. So let's get back to that chapter on the gospel, right? First Corinthians 15, he went back to Genesis, 8, to Genesis. And then what did the Apostle Paul do? He says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Death is an intruder into this world. It's an enemy to this world. You see, many well, many Christians, they come up, they say that, uh, why, why must we believe that, you know, that, um, why can't we say that God used millions of years? I already explained that. You can't do that because that put millions of years into the Bible you undermine the very foundation upon which the gospel stands. I don't have time to go through every single one of these here, but all these bubbles here, these clouds here, they rep- all these are, are views that theologians have come out to try to put millions of years in the Bible. But every single one of them try to put millions of years in. They always put death before the fall. And when they do that, they undermine the very foundation of the gospel itself. Here we have Frank Ziegler, and Frank Ziegler is the former president of American Atheists. And he actually said this in a debate. I want you to listen to what he said. He said the most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know Adam and Eve never were real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an, an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a savior. And I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution is absolutely the death now of Christianity. You know something? This atheist, he understands the foundation of the gospel better than many professing Christians. He understands that if evolution is true, Christianity cannot be true. But I say this, Christianity is true, the word of God is true, therefore evolution is not true. So churches come up and say, we are gospel-centered, we are gospel-centered. I turn around and ask them, how can you be gospel-centered if you have already undermined the very foundation upon which the gospel stands? See, if you want to understand the reason for the cross, you need to go back to 
Genesis. So at the end of the day, it boils down to this question, doesn't it? What is your authority? Is it the word of God? If it is, then let us train ourselves to defend the word of God, to look at the world starting with a biblical worldview, and then everything will begin to make much more sense. Jesus himself said this, For if you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus takes his authority on the inerrancy and infallibility of the books of Moses, Genesis. If there are mystics in Genesis, what are you going to do with Jesus? See, Genesis is not the gospel, right? But it is a gospel issue. Creation is a gospel issue because it's the foundation for the gospel itself. So let's get back to what we said earlier on. We show that studies find that the main, the main reason or excuse that people abandon the Christian upbringing, or at least that's the reason they give, is unanswered intellectual questions. We also see that two in three kids who grew up in church, if they're not taught to defend the faith when they get to college, they leave never to return. If I have three kids and two of them are going to leave the church because of this very issue, and I do not do anything to equip them to defend the faith, is that a side issue? Surely this only happened to other people's kids, right? You get my point? This is one of the most important things, I believe, as parents that we can do. We need to train our kids to be able to defend the faith so that the faith may be strengthened, so that this statistic, two in three kids, will not happen to them. So let's get back to our two friends. What about millions of years? What about fossils? What about dinosaurs? Imagine now Johnny has the answers and Johnny says, Hey, come, let me show you from the Bible. Do you think his witnessing will be far more effective? And not only that, he will not be stumbled by those very same questions. See, there's a spiritual battle out there, a battle for souls. And today we see that a big reason, a big excuse of, that, that, that unbelievers give revolve around this whole issue of creation and evolution because it boils down to the authority of God's word. So I hope you do not mind me being a little bit practical here. But if you came in, you see the book tables there. Why do you think we bring books here? See, before I joined Creation Ministries, I used to think that the main way we fund our ministry is by selling books. That's not really the case. We are mainly donor-supported. In fact, every two weeks, I'll fly somewhere in the States. My last trip was in Michigan. We had to fly a whole pallet of books there. Whatever doesn't sell, we fly back. That costs us money. So why do we do that? Because we understand this one thing. If you go to a library, if you go to schools, will you ever learn anything about creation at all? No. Every single book you can find in your library, I can guarantee you will talk about millions of years of evolution. How do I know that? The last 10 libraries I, I've gone to, I deliberately checked for creation books. I did not find a single one. You may find a few books on intelligent design, but nothing about a young earth or anything like that. So the only way you guys are going to be able to equip yourself, if you all made a commitment and say yes, I will train myself with these resources so I can make a difference in the life of my kids and families. So we, bring, we have about 700 resources in our warehouse, and we normally bring down the best ones that we have. But people still say that's too many. So they ask me, which resource, where, where should I start first? I always tell them the first resource to consider is Creation Magazine. Why? Because we actually get more testimonies of life being changed 
from this one magazine than any other resource that we sell. So this is a quarterly magazine. It's a family magazine. It's easy to read. It's glossy. Maybe that's why it gets so much, so much attention. And there's more advertising in there. And we do that for a reason, because we want the focus of this magazine to be for evangelism and equipping. And so one of the things that we cover in there, this is an example. How many of us have ever wondered about radiometric dating? Do they prove millions of years? Well, let's address that, right? So what's this? Mount St. Helens. So a few years after the volcano erupted, a new lava dome formed at the top. That's the center, this cone here in the center. It's new rock. So we know how old this rock is. Scientists took sample of this rock, sent it to a lab to be tested. So we use potassium argon. That's what we use to test volcanic rocks or igneous rocks. How old do you think that rock tested to be? 350,000 years. Okay, then they take this sample, they, they separate, it, separate it into different minerals. So the test feldspar, 340,000 years. Try a different mineral, 900,000 years. 1.7 to 2.8 million years. What was the actual age of this rock? At the time of testing, less than 10 years old. It doesn't work. So that's Mount St. Helens. That's the one you see at the top here. See, that's the volcanic age. At the time of testing, it was 10 years old. It gave us 2.8 million years. You can try that on other volcanoes around the world. Here, Hawaii, 200-year-old samples. This one gave us 22 million years. This one gave us 3.3 billion years. All right? From a 200-year-old sample. So the next page, I'm going to show you all these dates, okay? So you can see on the left, all the actual age, some 200, some 50 years, some 1,000 years. I'll show you more later on. On the right side, the radiometric dates in millions of years old. Let's look at that. Time and time again. Every single case, every single time we test rocks of known ages, it gives us the wrong dates. Okay? So this last one from New Zealand at time of testing, 25 to 50 years, gave us up to 3.5 million years. That's the one you see at the top here. All right? That's the same one. So what happens if we try different radiometric dating methods on this same rock? So potassium argon gave us 3.5. Let's try a different method. Give us 133 million years. Try another one. 197. Let's try a fourth one, lead to lead. 3.9 billion years. The different methods don't even agree on the age. In fact, the actual age, millions of times different. And so in the magazine, we ask this simple question. If all rocks of known ages give us the wrong dates, what makes you think? It works on rocks of unknown ages. See, we try to make it easy. You may not be able to explain all the complicated physics and mathematics, but do you think you can take a chart like that, go to your kids and say, hey, look, the word of God makes much more sense. The worldwide flood explains the fossil record that we see around us. These radiometric dates don't work at all. So that's Creation Magazine. So this is a quarterly magazine. Um, so if you pay for it, if you want to sign up for it today, if you sign up for it, you get your first issue today, and we'll mail the rest to you. And we are going to, when you get to the office, we need address, because we'll also send you a link where you can download a digital version of this magazine that you can share to up to five people. Okay, this used to be $19, but you include that in, in the subscription. So with this, one this digital version, send it to your kids, send it to your grandparents, send it to your friends who maybe are struggling with this very issue. You can use that stepping stone to share the gospel. It's a quarterly magazine, so in between those months, we actually have monthly periodicals and updates. 
So again, for a one-year subscription, you take the first issue with you today, we'll mail the rest to you. You get a digital version, you can share with five people. But for two years, you get all that, but we're going to throw in a third one. This is a documentary of Charles Darwin's trip to Galapagos Islands. So we take you down his trip in this documentary, and we ask this question. If Charles Darwin was alive today, would he be a creationist or evolutionist? So we address things like natural selection, mutation, speciation, and things like that. This used to be $19 as well. And then a fourth one, which used to be a $10 DVD, a fallout. This is the project where we interview students. Here the students give reasons in their own words for why they leave the church. The second half of the DVD, we go through the objections one by one, and we answer every single one of that. So all that for two-year subscription. If you're interested in that, this is what the form looks like. Fill in your details and take this form and bring it to the book tables. And then when you pay for it, we'll give you the free gifts today. By the way, the free gifts are not available if you go on our website. They're only available during our events. So um, volunteers, if you want, can hand out the sign-up sheets. As you're doing that, let me get into some other things as well. So after Creation Magazine, the next thing to consider is this red color book here. Okay, this is the Creation Answers book. The top 60 questions in 20 chapters. So if I do a one-hour Q&A, 90% of the questions will come from this one book alone. Okay, so what, what's in there? Chapter 19 covers about dinosaurs. What other questions is there? What about distant starlight? Where did Cain get his wife? What about continental drift? What about the Ice Age? How did animals get to Australia? All those questions in this one book alone. Okay, so I highly recommend this book. If you want to get a pack, it comes with this book, Refuting Evolution. We sold half a million copies dealing with high school evolution, real evolution, bird evolution, and so on. And the third one is the DVD. That covers a talk somewhat similar to what you hear today. If you like a lot of the cartoons, this book is written for kids. But my boss, like this, Gary Bates, like to say that this is an adult book disguised as a kid's book. Because adults tell me that they learn more from this book about geology um, than many of the other books that um, they have for adults because it's easy to understand. The hands-on activities and it's good for homeschooling, uh, upper elementary and above, I would highly recommend this. A lot of the cartoons that you see are from this book. And we have a second one on dinosaurs as well. In my opinion, the best DVD to look at is Evolution Ecclesiastes. You may be familiar with this. We won two Christian awards for this. Very highly recommended. The best-selling DVD of all time uh, from, from the creation side. Uh, and that's a book that covers in more depth very much the same thing. So just on Thursday, I was speaking at a, at a homeschool um, co-op. And um, they make all students actually study through this one book. Best commentary on Genesis, the Genesis account. I'll talk about this uh, during my final session this evening as well. And uh, this is, uh, in my opinion, the best commentary in Genesis 1 to 11. covers church the theology, history, and um, science. But I really like the theological aspect in this book. And our scientists actually went two years into this book, take, take the best parts out, make it easy to understand, and we converted that into 12, 45-minute teaching session. Easy to understand, and this is actually designed for use as a Sunday school in church. So if you're going to do a, a course in your church, 12, 45 minutes teaching session, or you do that for homeschooling at home, this will be a very suitable tool to use as well. But again, before you look at all these things, um, check out the Creation Magazine for reasons I gave earlier on. This, we get more testimonies of life being changed from this magazine than any other magazine that we have. So by the way, that's me and my daughter in our home in Georgia. You see, friends, there are answers to all these questions that we have. But sadly, most people only get to hear one side of the story. 
but the answers are out there. See, a friend heard this message. He was very, very um, stirred up after that. And he wrote in to us. He said that, how can we reach a campus of 20,000 people who have a negative view of religion, God, and Christianity? You know, me, me standing here on a Saturday for a few hours, I cannot do that. Do you know who can? Every single one of you. If every single one of us made the commitment and said, yes, I will train myself, to equip myself so that I can reach my families, my kids, my church. If we all do that, we can reach the world for Christ. See, this is not about me. This is not about creation ministries. This is about you and your families. This is about the kingdom of God. I know I share a lot of things here today. And to be honest, even if you forget everything, that's fine. I just want you to remember one thing. If you forget everything, remember this challenge in the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Casting down imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing to captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. If we all make this commitment to train ourselves, we can make a difference. Thank you.